This is Catherine Cruz. And, you know, it's been a little bit more than a week since we learned of a leak of a toxic firefighting foam at the Navy's Red Hill Underground Fuel Facility. It's often referred to as PFAS or forever chemicals because they don't break down in the environment easily. The military says cleanup of contaminated soil in the immediate spill site has been completed, but it will continue to work with the EPA and and state health officials on other aspects of the contamination cleanup. It expects the results from soil testing next week. It's also testing nine of its water wells as well as its Red Hill shaft for those dangerous chemicals. This morning, we talked to Board of Water Supply Chief Engineer Ernie Lau and Deputy Manager Erwin Kawada. They were able to visit the spill site the day after the incident. They're encouraged by the Navy's actions so far, but they are calling for additional testing. They actually should test all their monitor wells, including Red Hill Shaft. Between the Navy and the Department of Health and EPA, they have agreed upon a sampling and an analysis plan, and we're trying to get a copy of that plan to see if we need to provide any recommendations. I understand that they're going to be testing maybe nine or ten of the monitor wells. My concern is that they should be testing all of them. Are we testing any of our wells? Yes, we are. We have been testing, and maybe Erwin can explain our efforts to test our drinking water wells. Over the last two years, we have been testing all of our drinking water wells for PFAS in preparation for new EPA regulations that start next year that will require water utilities across the country to do extensive PFAS testing. So in preparation for that, we were using the same methods, test methods, to see if we have any kind of issues with our wells and any kind of uh, problems except for two wells that we found very low concentrations. All of them, we have not yet found any kind of PFAS detections in our drinking water wells. How frequent is this testing? Well, for next year, the testing was just required to do it two times within a three-year period. It's a three-year monitoring cycle, and utilities are required to do two six-month testing rounds. So our plan is to do that, and then the test results will be made available for the public to review, to see in their annual water quality reports. And then from there, what we're going to end up doing is we're going to end up doing uh, annual testing just to keep an eye on it and keep track, especially if we see any detections, monitor any kind of changes in those levels that we find. When did we first get the results back? The test results comes back in about three to four weeks. So it's pretty fast compared to like petroleum testing. We had a detection in 2020 and 2021. We reported those detections to Department of Health and a press release was issued, a notification to the public was issued. And so Ernie, I guess going forward, what the position is, you know, this is gonna be a new requirement for utilities and you want the military to step it up? Yeah, in particular because they released the AFFF concentrate liquid The 1,300 gallons, I think that's now the uh, latest estimate of how much was released into the environment. And for the frequency of testing, we're demanding that it be done on a weekly basis because we think this is going to move through the environment, move through the ground, and may eventually reach the groundwater. But it's important to test frequently right now to kind of determine where it might be heading. Do we know how it moves through basalt? From what I understand, this material, the PFAS chemicals dissolve very easily into water, very water-soluble, and it'll move with the natural flowing groundwater. They're also persistent in the environment and don't readily degrade, so they could be there 
for a long time. And, and that's why I think the term forever chemicals is commonly used to describe some of these. Is there anything else, Erwin, that you can share? No, as far as the board's drinking water wells, we're going to go do the testing. We'll report the results, and we'll continue to monitor them on an annual basis. If we see any detections, we certainly will monitor those more frequently to see if there's any kind of changes. And if not, then we'll just continue to do you know, annual surveillance on our wells. All this is delaying the defueling process. What are your thoughts on that, Ernie? Yeah, I am very concerned that uh, this is going to add, you know, the current target the Navy's identified as mid-2024. Very concerned that that this is going to delay that target I, because I, I've actually been pushing for an earlier timeline for this, a faster defueling. Because as long as there's 104 million gallons of diesel and jet fuel just 100 feet over our drinking water aquifer, we're at risk of even more releases, maybe even large releases. So they need to move it, uh, step it up and move it faster. This incident is very disappointing because it's another excuse or reason for delaying getting that 104 million gallons out of there. And as soon as they get the 104 million gallons out, uh, out of Red Hill, perhaps they don't even need this firefighting foam system anymore. They can remove all these other problematic environmentally risky chemicals from being over our aquifer also. The military says that it probably, you know, might take 30 days, you know, to to get the results of its investigation to find out what actually caused this release. And, you know, at the time I remember thinking, gosh, you know, I don't know what's worse, you know, the fact that this was released or that we don't know what led to it because there are, I think, what, miles of pipeline of this stuff in that facility. Right. It's kind of troubling. You know, I did have a chance to go out there at the invitation of Admiral John Wade, and I appreciate that this was the, actually the day after the actual event. So they showed me uh, the location, and, you know, something caused the pump that would normally pump this AFFF concentrate liquid into a pipeline that runs into the lower access tunnel. And it's usually only it happens, I think, when they have a fire and they need to actually create foam to put out the fire. But in this case, there wasn't any event, but the pump turned on, and that led to leaks in that AFFF steel pipe in the tunnel near Added 6. And I'm wondering if it's leaked in other locations in the tunnel, too. But they eventually pumped out 1,300 gallons of the AFFF concentrate and emptied the tank. It's all very troubling. How could this happen? I, I don't understand. You know, there's another issue that's been hanging out there, and that's the siting of our landfill. The request for our our position on the six potential sites for a new landfill, new city landfill, all, all located over a drinking water aquifer. That request came from the City Department of Environmental Services. got the letter, I think, on November 3rd. My response to that was actually to disapprove it. And and it is, uh, you know, related to, I think, some of the valuable lessons we've learned here with the Red Hill fuel contamination of our aquifer issue here. Our groundwater resources are precious. They're pure and uncontaminated. But if we put facilities over them in the future, and we're talking not only 10 years, 20, 50, or 100 years, we're talking about hundreds of years or you know, generations to come, if they have a potential to leak and damage our finite, precious groundwater resources, then we need to look at other alternatives. 
that doesn't put our drinking water resources at risk. And that's my position. It's really about the protection of the Phi, of our water resources that we depend on. That is our supply of drinking water. That doesn't leave too much wiggle room for the city. I mean, they've got to, what, go back to the Land Use Commission? I think it's going to be up to the Department of Environmental Services. I realize when people live on a, at a place, they generate waste, garbage, opala, and that has to be managed and dealt with uh, in an environmentally responsible way. But also people need safe drinking water to survive, and water is life. So it is a big challenge to look at solutions that doesn't compromise the water resources that we depend on for our lives. They did invite us about the middle of this year to make a a presentation, Erwin and I, Mm -hmm. to the Landfill Advisory Committee. And I believe we talked to them maybe a couple times around the middle of 2022. We told them putting a landfill over the drinking water aquifer in the area, the no-pass zone is not a good idea. We depend on these water resources. And eventually, landfills will leak, whether it's 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, you know, there is no way to guarantee that the landfill will not leak in the future. And once it leaks, the leachate, which is basically rainwater seeping through the landfill and moving downward toward the ground, and they try to capture that, leachate has a lot of contamination, contaminants in it. So it's going to be really uh, dangerous and risky to our underground aquifer. So whether it's the military or another city agency, you just think the risks are too great? Yeah, when you think about risk, it's, you know, it's the probability of a failure times the uh, consequence. And in this case, the consequence of contaminating very important underground aquifers is tremendous to our community. And we can see Red Hills, we're living it right now, the impact on our people and also, you know, the almost 100,000 people that were directly affected by it. That was the Honolulu Board of Water Supply's Chief Engineer, Ernie Lau, and Deputy Manager Erwin Kawada talking to us this morning about the risks to our aquifer. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering an executive MBA, scheidler.hawaii.edu. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. In the new exhibition, Moe Moe A, artist Noah Harders transforms found materials into fantastical works. On view now, honolulumuseum.org. There's been significant change in the eruption activity atop Mauna Loa. The U.S. Geological Survey says the supply to the lava flow currently less than two miles away from the Daniel K. Inouye Highway has been cut off and is no longer a major concern at the moment. While Fisher 3 continues to erupt, its production is reduced. Hawaii County Mayor Mitch Ross says the highway is still open in both directions and the eruption still does not threaten any communities or structures. The current eruption may be uh, inspiring a whole new generation of volcanologists, but it was nearly four decades ago that a young geology graduate, Scott Rowland, got his first chance to study lava flows on Hawaii Island. Rowland is now a professor at University of Hawaii at Manoa and has studied volcanic flows across the world, under sea, and even on Mars. But his first love will always be Hawaii's historical eruptions. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke with Roland about how this latest eruption compares to other flows. 
He starts off with his first days working on the mountain slopes as a graduate student. This was pre-Google Maps and all that kind of stuff. So we were using air photographs to do our mapping. And what flows from Mauna Loa did you focus on? Probably the two that we focused on the most were the 1859 Mauna Loa flow. And it starts up on the north flank. It's an oddball. It's one of a few on Mauna Loa that are not, their vents are not on the rift zone. And so it starts up on the north flank and heads down between Mauna Loa and Hualalai and eventually ends up down at Anaiho Malu, which is now Resort Central, but it certainly was not in 1859. And then there's the 1880 to 81 flow which is a Northeast Rift Zone flow. And it started out the way the current eruption is behaving with mountains and fast-moving a'a flows, but then it switched into Pahoy Hoi. And those Pahoy Hoi flows moved very slowly, but kept on going and eventually made it into what is today Hilo. At the time, Hilo was much smaller, and I think it might have destroyed one structure back then, but the tip of that 1881 flow is close to where Chilo campus is, about a block away. So certainly if that type of eruption were to happen today, um, then Chilo might be worried. There have been a lot of comparisons between the 1984 flow and this current eruption. Is that eruption coming up because it is the most recent one, or is there commonalities between what we saw then and what we're seeing today? I think both. Certainly it is, it was the most recent one. The vents are nearby. The 1984 vents were a little farther down rift than the current eruption vents are. But like the current eruption, it started with a summit phase up in Mokuaveoveo. And also like the current eruption, it, it, erupted high on the southwest rift zone very briefly at the very beginning of the eruption before localizing on the northeast rift zone. I'm pretty sure the 1984 eruption rate, the, the volume per time coming out of the vent, was higher than the current eruption is, but not by a lot. By virtue of the vents being a little farther down rift, Instead of heading straight towards the saddle where the current flow is stalled, these flows missed the saddle and curved down towards Hilo. And they got within, I think, about 10 kilometers of the outskirts of Hilo. And they were sort of worrisome for a little while. Like almost all lava flows, they start off fast and they slow as time goes on, uh, mainly because they are cooling off and they just can't flow as easily. Before they start to slow, while they're still in their high velocity phase, it, and you see them coming down the hill towards Hilo, it, it's no wonder lots of folks were worried. What has been the most destructive flow in Mount Loa's recorded history? I guess it would have to be the 1950 eruption, which is the largest one that we have written records about. It was a Southwest Rift Zone eruption. It, set, it produced six big lava flows, and four of those six made it into the ocean, one of which took only three or four hours to do so, coming down the steep western flank of Mauna Loa. And so the main things that were destroyed were the road, 
which is more or less where the current highway is. And I think there were some farm structures that were destroyed. I don't believe there were any coastal villages destroyed by the 1950 eruption, but I might be wrong about that. And of course, a repeat of that type of activity is what people always worry about is because think about 1950 compared to today, the number of people who live along that flank of Mauna Loa has increased enormously. That was geologist and University of Hawaii professor Scott Rowland and HPR Savannah Heron Pote. Rowland uh, will be talking more about advances in volcanology when we return to the interview right after the break. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center, promoting lifelong health and wellness through health care, open to all. Learn more at hicommunityhealthcenter.org. Well, we continue our interview uh, between uh, the conversations of Samantha Harriman Pote and geologist Scott Rowland. Roland looks at the dormant periods of Hawaii Island's volcanoes and advancements made in the field of volcanology. I grew up on Hawaii Island, but Mount Loa has not erupted in my lifetime. And so it was easy for me to forget that Mount Loa is an active volcano. How can we keep people aware and remind them of this potential for eruption when we're considering development during long periods of dormancy? Certainly the USGS and the county have done a lot of work looking at past eruption patterns. And the USGS, as far back as the 1970s, developed lava flow inundation maps based on the frequency for any point on the Big Island, how many times has it been buried by lava since written records have been kept, which is basically 1800, the year 1800. And it, these maps matched the, volcano the, the volcanology and the topography pretty well. So the rift zones of Kilauea and Mauna Loa are both inundation zone one because lava has covered them most frequently in the last 200 something years. And then the flanks immediately downslope from the rift zones are zone two, and the flanks a little farther away are zone three. Uh, all of Hualalai is zone four, so don't forget Hualalai. It last erupted in 1801, uh, which is certainly a lot longer ago than Mauna Loa last erupted, but it's not a dead volcano, and it almost certainly will erupt again someday. And in fact, the eruption prior to the most recent one, so we, we used to think it was in 1800 AD, but it was probably more likely in the mid-1700s. That particular eruption produced some very fast-moving lava flows. And in fact, there are stories of them overwhelming people and villages down on the coast of Hualalai. And, you know, even if it was in the mid-1700s, that's not that long ago. So Hualalai is much more worrisome from a standpoint of potential risk to people downslope. And of course, Hualalai is just completely built up down on the lower flanks with all that Kailua Kona development and some of the resorts north of there and the airport. 
the airport, in fact, sits on that 1801 Pahoehoe flow that erupted from Lai. The county knows where these zones are, and insurance companies know where these zones are. So I think the main control on whether people build in them or not is whether one can get homeowner's insurance. I read accounts of 1800s letters documenting people discovering there was an eruption on Hawaii Island while on other islands because fish would arrive dead on shore and it would look like they were parboiled or there would be particular days at haze, what we now know as bog. What do you think has been the biggest scientific leap in volcanology between then and now, and also just in your own life? What do we know about the behavior of volcanoes that we didn't know 40 years ago? Certainly since the 1800s, volcanoes are actually monitored. Prior to the establishment of the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory in 1912, the volcanoes were not monitored. There were no seismometers, there were no tilt meters, nothing. There were people out observing and there were regular folks supplying their observations to the newspapers of the day, many of which were in Hawaiian language. Um, but there was not any kind of instrumental monitoring or systematic measuring of things until 1912. Certainly since the early 1960s, that's when the monitoring effort at Kilauea and Mauna Loa really took off. But the installation of seismometers all over the Big Island, the development of tools and techniques to measure how the ground deforms as a volcano inflates and deflates, those have been pretty revolutionary in understanding what's going on at a volcano in between eruptions. Right. Once a volcano starts erupting, it's easy to study. And I don't mean to say that to be flippant about it. It's erupting and you know where the lava flows are going. And if you want to study it, you go to those, you go to those places. The, and it's, that's what the USGS is doing now. The part that's really difficult is figuring out what's going on in between eruptions and leading up to eruptions. And that really requires a lot of instrumentation, which has become more and more sophisticated, more and more accurate thing from using GPS to using satellite interferometry, which allows us to measure changes in the ground surface of sub smaller than a centimeter over the entire surface of a volcano. That would have been unthinkable just 30 years or so ago. Um, since I've been studying volcanoes, those same techniques have come along. When I was doing field work for grad school, I, there was no GPS. So I had to figure out where I was using a map and a compass and the, the ability to measure what volcanoes is, were doing has really increased. The last question I have for you is just what's something that you find really neat about the work that you're able to do? I, I guess it's true for just about anybody that the opportunity to watch a lava flow, watch an eruption out in the field, Maybe, you know, in a remote place, far from roads and city lights and noise, you can't beat that. I got up to watch the sunrise up at Mauna Kea this morning. How was the view? Oh, unbelievable. It was just spectacular. That was geologist and University of Hawaii professor Scott Rowland talking about the history of Mauna Loa's eruptions. Check out our continued coverage of the eruption on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. 
Support for HPR comes from SEEKS, the School for Examining Essential Questions of Sustainability, a public charter middle school celebrating 10 years of serving Honolulu families. Learn more at seeqs.org. Sea Salts of Hawaii hosted a grand opening blessing for its facility in Kona just a few weeks ago. It's where salt comes from seawater, some 2,200 feet below the surface. The company joined forces, taking over the operation from Kona Pa'akai. Pa'akai is the Hawaiian word for salt. Pa'a means solid. Kai is ocean. And we were there recently as tours of the salt farm reopened to the public at a newly renovated visitor center. Take a listen as our guide, Kanikoa Pond White, introduces us to Pa'akai. Uh, traditionally, you grab the lauhala, which you see right here, comes from a tree, but basically this is a dried leaf. You kind of want to ma- weave it into a large mat. Once this mat is made, toss it into the ocean. Leave for about 30 minutes, pull it up, still strong. Put it on a very rocky area where it's dry, no debris. Let it go for an entire day. Come back the next day, pick up the lauhala mat, and just roll it. Once you roll it, you see salt starting to fall. That's how they um, naturally make their salt. But the thing is, in Hanapepe, they do not sell their salt. Um, They believe traditionally that it is culturally acceptable to trade gifts and not necessarily money. And then the second place, folks, is actually in Moloka'i, where my mother is from. They have the Moloka'i Salt Farm. We actually sell two of their salts inside of our store here. One of them is called Oahi, and in Hawaiian, Oahi translates to black smoke. And how is that made? Again, you get the salt, and what you want to do is, uh, on the other process, grab a bunch of coconut shells, just the shells themselves. Put it in a pile, kind of burn it up, wait till it's a cinder. Now it's um, basically dust. This dust is actually known as coconut charcoal. This coconut charcoal, mix it up, and there you have it, Oahi. The tour shares more of Hawaii salt history and this sense of place. The seven-acre facility shares space with an algae company that began operating at the state's Natural Energy Laboratory in 1999. Melanie Kelecolio was there from the beginning and has watched the business morph over the years. She was excited to move into this next phase of diversification for Sea Salts of Hawaii as its visitor center offers rental venues for events as well as a retail space for those who stop by for the eco-tours. It's the latest venture of this mariculture business as it positions itself in the marketplace. Primarily, the biggest difference is the seawater, the the access of the 2,200 feet deep seawater that we're actually able to use to make our sea salt. You know, it's not like your most other places, it's just common surface seawater. So that's the biggest difference there. And then also, you know, it's not mined or anything like that. And in order to stay within like health department guidelines and that kind of thing you know we fully enclose our evaporation units so although we still use the natural solar you know the natural sun to evaporate we do have some little more modern twist i mean if you go back to ancient tradition times it was just out in the open obviously things are different now you know it's maybe not as clean or you know even just being in the area that we're in there's a lot of gravel and so there's a lot of you know you can have some dust particles in the air so just trying to keep it pristine has been one of our biggest thing i mean we have this already pristine deep sea water and it never sees the surface for 900 years you know and then coming into our evaporation unit so we make sure we've got like filtered air coming in there and it's it's totally pristine. So when the salt actually crystallizes, it's just the whitest salt you've ever seen. You are also 
committing a portion of the proceeds to help clean up Papahanao Makuakea. And, and I think, you know, there's a big thing now with regenerative tourism, you know, healing the land, healing the aina and the ocean. And so this seems to be one of the bright spots is that you folks are incorporating a lot of the, you know, Hawaiian values and, you know, what makes this place special. Yeah, you know, we obviously we still have lots of work to do. I mean, we're still working on becoming more energy efficient, as well as, you know, as you mentioned that, you know, our, part of our proceeds go to Papahanaumokuakea debris project. And for ourselves too, trying to, trying to find that balance between, you know, requirements as well as, and then trying to stay as, you know, as, as green as possible it, it's definitely a work in progress for us, and, but I feel like we're definitely head, headed in the right direction. It takes a lot of planning and, and, and trying to make it right. And so you folks are open for tours. You now have a retail shop. Where else are your products sold? Uh, let's see, we're like in all of the ABC stores in the state. Uh, we're also um, in some of the Whole Foods, uh, let's see, uh, and some of the local markets on the islands. And you know, it's just, I think, it's been a great partnership for Sea Salt of Hawaii and Kona Sea Salt and, um, and just kind of getting our name out there. And then just trying to stay, stay pure to the product, I think is really important. You know, the tough part is trying to produce it at a, a large scale and to be able to meet the, the demands. So it's just trying to use some of the old traditions, but also incorporating newer technology to help us out in that in that respect. This area here, I mean, this was a research facility to be able to try new things, to innovate, and, you know, help with the whole sustainability issue, you know, just, um, I guess it's a work in progress. And that's exactly what it was, is research and development. I mean, you know, first from microalgae and then the sea salt and learning about the mineral content in the sea salt and and then actually learning how to produce it. And, and so it has been just kind of a, research and development and just growing from there. Yeah. So trial and error. And then is this modeled after another salt facility anywhere else? Are you just trying to see what works? You know, it, it hasn't been modeled from anywhere else. It's just trying to make it work in, in this place that we're at. So just sort of kind of putting our evaporation units into a place that was actually made for something else originally and then and then just trying to like mold it from right. there. And so you were here at this facility when it was doing the algae? Microalgae, yes, we were growing microalgae first and it was just about research and development as far as um, scaling, you know, scaling up. It was it's always the challenge, right? So it was originally AquaSearch when I first started and then it changed to Mera. So I was kind of on this roller coaster ride, Mera and then Kona Paakai and now Hawaiian Islands trading. You know, so it's been a great learning process up till now. And I feel like, you know, now we've, we're gonna start to see our potential and actually, and grow from there. And trying to do it right as best we can. Sea Salts of Hawaii aims to educate visitors and residents about salt and its place in our history. And that includes ex explaining Hawaiian values about responsibility, kuleana, and the need to take care of the land, malama the aina, as well as the ocean. The company shares a portion of its proceeds to help with marine debris in the Pacific Ocean and the efforts to protect Papahanao, Makuakea, the marine preserve area in our backyard. We wrap up our SALT series tomorrow with a youth uh, theater production entitled The Pa'akai We Bring.
And that wraps it up for our show today. I'm Catherine Cruz. 